Welcome to Beautiful Places to Die. If it's your first time with us, welcome. If you are joining us after listening to episode one, thank you so much for coming back. This is something that I kind of should have talked about in the last episode, but I was kind of running on raw nerves and word vomit. And the only reason I sound even somewhat coherent is due to the magical, wonderful editing talent of Chris. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) So here at Beautiful Places to Die, I wanted to tell you a little bit about why I'm so excited about this project. It came to me a while ago, and immediately I, I went to Chris and I was like, we have to do this. And it's not something that I have any experience with. It's not anything that Chris has any... Well, Chris is an experienced podcaster. I will take that back. But it is not the, the camping side of things, the traveling, the nature, the things that can kill us we usually avoid and it's done us well because we're still alive but now for us for you for the world we're gonna go and and see those things and we want to tell you about it and we want to tell you why we're scared and we want to tell you why we're proud that we did it and we want to see all the beautiful places to die The den of the horse you rode in on saloon was always at the perfect level to lose oneself. Just loud enough to drown out any thoughts, with enough quiet spots to escape to when you would need to think over a pint or five. Tonight, the man at the bar needed the noise and the drinks. He had received yet another rejection letter for his most recent manuscript, a rather torrid tale regarding a man obsessed with a beautiful but dead woman an obsession that was mirrored in a rejection letter in front of him on the bar counter, a ring of moisture in the corner where he had placed his drinks as he poured over the contents. While another interesting offering, the writer loudly read to any around him, overall this work is mundane and stale. We regret to inform you that we will pass on publishing this poem at this time. He takes a long drink of the amontillado in front of him, draining the half-full glass, Barkeep, another from the cask, if you will. The bartender rolled his eyes, hesitant to keep supplying the increasingly drunk man. Coin was coin, though, and he obliged, pouring another tall glass of the writer's favorite spirit. With barely a thank you, the writer continued to narrate the rejection letter, much to the dismay of the other patrons, many of whom had heard the contents thrice already. Horror is a dying genre, one we no longer want to entertain as we move forward in our publications. A choked laugh escaped the writer's lips as he proceeded. We implore you to consider this moving forward and wish you success in coming endeavors. Another laugh and a large pull from his quickly emptying glass. The laughter quickly turned to tears as he placed his head down on the counter. The bartender considered stopping to check in on the man but other patrons were calling for refills. He moved past the sobbing figure. Around the writer, patrons, growing uncomfortable at the grown man lamenting into his wine, began to find other seats and tables nearby. The man's sobs began to quiet after some time. The bar was beginning to quiet as well as it neared closing time, and the man perked up as he heard a faint but definite thump-thump from around him. The thumping was faint at first, inconsistent, so sporadic that he wondered if he had simply imagined it. Then, thump, thump, another one, 
thump, thump, growing more steady and louder around him, as if the beating of a heart pulsed in his ears. He placed a hand on his own chest, curious if the wine had had an unintended effect on his body. However, all seemed well there, and the thumping continued, both around him and inside his head. Thump, 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 louder and louder. The man stumbled away from his seat, the thumping around him beginning to overwhelm his senses. He could barely hear the bartender calling out to him. A hand grabbed his shoulder, attempting to steady him, but he pushed it away with urgency. He made it to the door of the saloon and pushed out into the night, a final thump, thump, resonating before he was greeted with the cool October air. Leaning against the brick wall of the bar, he steadied his breathing, waiting for any more thumping, only to be greeted with silence. Laughing to himself, he shook his head, as if clearing the incident from his memory, and stumbled off through the cobblestone streets of Charm City. The lights illuminated his way forward as the recollection of the strange thumping faded from his mind. Oddly enough, the rejection letter also seemed less important. What was another rejection when he had his stories in other publications? The thought perked him up as he passed a darkened alleyway and stopped, noting a small, bright dot just above the ground. He paused, looking into the darkness, when a creature meowed. Just a black cat, darker than the air around it, with one missing eye. He knelt down, reaching his hand out. Come here, little one. What happened to you, I wonder? The midnight black cat timidly stepped out of the darkness to run his face across the writer's hand, purring slightly. A smile broke across the man's face. He continued to pet the feline until, suddenly, the creature swiped at his hands with its claws out and biting at his fingers, barely grazing them. "'Curse you, you foul devil!' cried the man, kicking at the cat, sending it further into the darkness with a hiss. He checked his hand, noting only small pinpricks of blood. Looking back into the darkness, he saw that the feline was joined with more shining eyes. Another black cat, this one with a white patch on its chest, stood next to the original. Still more shining dots appeared in the dark, along with a symphony of meowing and growling. The writer, now more uneasy, stepped away and heard it again. Thump, thump. With an anguished cry, the writer moved quickly down the cobblestone streets with more haste than before, checking behind him to note the growing clouder of black and white cats behind him. Thump, thump. Thump, thump. The thumping grew in volume and strength, and the cat stared at him accusingly. The rider, now almost running, passed by shops and homes, praying for any sign of human life to offer him solace. Turning a corner, he noted a figure walking slowly ahead of him. He rushed on, desperate to have someone who could help him with the growing strangeness of the night. Stepping closer, he could see the man had a bird perched on his shoulder, a raven, almost as dark as the cats he left behind. Such a strange companion for a man to keep, the writer thought as he reached the other man, crying out to get his attention. The cry was cut off as the man turned quickly, as if anticipating the writer. He was tall, clad in a dark crimson cloak clasped with a glittering gold bug, wearing a red half-mask shaped as a skull, his jaw and mouth uncovered. Thump, thump. 
Another thump echoed in the writer's head as he slowed, unsure if he wanted to proceed with speaking to the strange man. The raven cawed, an almost human cry, and took flight, landing on a streetlight nearby. The masked man stood and regarded the writer with a mix of curiosity and empathy, reaching out a hand, as if with an invitation to join him on his walk. Thump, thump. Thump, thump. Thump, thump. The thumping grew louder and louder as a sickening smile crossed the face of the masked man, revealing decaying teeth. The writer let loose a strangled cry and stepped into the street, making his way to the park across the way. A fluttering of wings rose up as more ravens landed on the trees and streetlights around him, all cawing their peculiar cry. Entering the park, the noise of the ravens and thumping ceased almost immediately. Bravely, he risked a glance behind him, only to be met with darkness and empty streets. No cats, no ravens, no strangers. Just the night. Breathing a sigh of relief, the rider found his way further into the dark of the park, wanting to be further away from the streets where the nightmares seemed to reside. With each step, he could feel his head throbbing from the alcohol still in his system. As if with a dawning realization, the man laughed out loud. You fool, he said to nobody in particular. You simply imagine these things in your drunken state. He continued to chuckle at himself, finding a bench to sit at, in an effort to rest himself before continuing home. The wooden bench felt steady under him as he sat down not realizing how tired he actually felt. Leaning his head back, he counted the seconds silently to himself, willing the aching in his head and body to subside so he could reach the comfort of his bed. That's when the bells chimed. Just two at the start, causing the writer to wonder if the hour was really as late as it seemed. 2 a.m. already, but the bar closed at midnight, he thought to himself. Then more bells. Bells, 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 chiming louder and louder, a cacophony of chiming seeming to surround him, angrily resounding the tolling of multiple bells overwhelming him. Bells, 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 thump, thump, more thumping from the phantom heartbeat, pulsing in his head, driving him to madness. He covered his ears to drown the sounds out, but to no avail. A scream escaped his lips, drowned out by the discord of the chimes. Shadows flew over him as the ravens returned, cawing angrily, joining in a symphony of pandemonium driving him mad. As blackness descended upon the broken man, he looked up one final time to see the cloaked figure hovering over him, the red mask a stark contrast against the blackening. As the noise and night overtook the writer, the creature in the red mask reached out and whispered, That was scary. Wasn't it? Yeah. I really felt that it was necessary to, to really encompass what we don't know about the last moments of who we're going to be talking about today. Um, and we're releasing this on his very birthday. And we are talking about one, Edgar Allan Poe. Happy 214th birthday, if I can math correctly. Hey, we'll go with that. 214th birthday. Need. <laughs> Doesn't look a day over 62. 
<laughs> to learn a little bit more about who we're talking about today, I actually went back from before his birth and found out a little bit about where he came from. He is the son of David Poe Jr. and Elizabeth Eliza Arnold Poe. And starting with his father, his father was uh, born in Baltimore around 1784 to David Poe Sr., who was uh, an immigrant from Ireland, who was an immigrant from Ireland and an American patriot. He actually financed uh, part of the American Revolution, and he was a good friend of Marquis de Lafayette, and, who actually would refer to him as an honorary general. So that was Edgar's grandfather on his paternal side. His mother, Eliza, was born in London in 1787, and uh, it's not really sure what happened to her father, but she and her mother sailed to Boston in 1796 when she was just nine years old. And she started acting that very year. Her mother was also a stage actress. So she began her life of touring and acting right then and there. Hmm. No wonder that where Poe gets a lot of his creativity from if he was surrounded by the arts with his mother. Right. Kind of going back to his father just a little bit. So she arrived in Boston, started acting, and they were with a troupe who was run by a, a theater troupe who was run by a man named Mr. Edgar. And a couple years later, when her own mother had passed on, she stayed as a child actor traveling with the troupe, which was kind of customary of orphans at the time to just continue working and traveling. At age 15, Eliza Arnold married a man named Charles Hopkins, and he was actually uh, taken by yellow fever just three years later, so she was widowed. She continued to perform, and her troupe was performing in Norfolk, Virginia, and David was in the audience. He saw Eliza and immediately fell in love with her, quit his life. He was supposed to be a lawyer, um, go to law school, and he quit all of that and became an actor to travel with her, and six months later, they were married. That's insane. But, you know, at that time, you know, the, what was this, early 1800s, late late 1700s? Yes. So, you know, you kind of had to move quickly and, and take what you could. You know, they, we had just gotten out of the Revolutionary War, so people were, you know, you fall in love, you do it. So that's definitely a good start to, to Poe's life, it seems. Yes, yeah, so they... Um... They were of a meager income and lived in boarding houses, um, but the Poes had a son, Henry, um, William Henry Leonard Poe, in 1807. And things were going great for Eliza. She was a kind of a known actress. People came out to see her. They said she had a great voice, an interesting figure. She was beautiful. However, unfortunately, David was not quite as regarded. In one review, a critic called him literally nothing. Oh wow. That's so, brutal. Right. They just said he is, he was nothing. There was it might as well had not even been on the stage. That's so harsh. Yeah. Yeah, he uh, took to drinking to comfort him. Mm. Kind of had the star wife. So, they have this little baby boy um and it kind of seems like it, from the timing he was a honeymoon baby. And then just two years later, 
Edgar Allen was born in January, January 19th, 1809. Happy birthday. In Boston, where they were living in a boarding house at the time, performing in a theater there. Still one of our dream goals here. Get to Boston to see that part where he, where he started, but we're going to get to the ending here. Well, where he was actually born is not, it's long gone, but there's a, I believe, a courtyard and a plaque. It's, it's funny when you go into, like, actually looking into this, from South Carolina to Boston, up and down the coast, there's just different places that are known for um, spots that he lived or did something special at. <laughs> so Edgar was born in January of 1809, and it is believed that he was named after the Mr. Edgar who ran the acting troupe that they were still with. That makes sense. I, I don't know, and nothing has said this, but I've just kind of inferred that he may have ended up being like a fog, father figure to her. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it definitely makes sense if he was uh, taking her in as a child actress and, you know, they were on the road constantly. He probably took great, great care of her. It said that because of financial hardships, they ended up going and moving to New York, leaving Boston and going to New York when Edgar and Henry were very young. And a few weeks after moving to New York, David took off. Oh, wow. Um, there are reports that say he left and came back. It's not really clear, but it's saying that he would have taken off mid-1809. And then Rosalie Poe was born December 20th, 1810. So there are questions about did he leave and come back? Or is there something strange with her paternity? Another thing that added to that is a wealthy man in Richmond left her about $2,000 in his will when she was eight years old. Today, that would be about $50,000. Scandal. Right. Nobody talks about this part. (laughs) Well, somebody did. (laughs) And I will actually put links in to where I did most of my research. It was uh, partially from... Uh, some foundation websites and the National Park Services and a couple books. So going forward, um, now two years old, um, Edgar and his mom, sister, and brother, she was still performing, and she actually got sick. And she died December 8th, 1811, leaving behind a infant, two, and four-year-old. Mm. At that time, David was not with them, and it's not known exactly where he was, but interestingly enough, the best reports that I can find say that he died on December December 11th, 1811, which was just three days after Eliza died. Oh, wow. He died in Norfolk, Virginia, and it's believed that it was because of TB, but it's not sure. The largest believed reason of death for Eliza, though it's not documented at all, was pneumonia. Okay. However, my own little rabbit hole theory is what if they had something that they gave each other? Yeah. And it and it, it uh, consumed them around the same time. That could be, yeah. I mean, there were a lot, lots of things going on, you know, at the start of there, you know, we were facing another plague. Um, as we're ought to do around the, the tens and twenties of every century. So, and with medicine the way it was, you know, nobody knew you could have been carrying something for, for years and just ended up, you know, succumbing to it. Well, 
yeah, it's it's the Wild West mm-hmm. of uh, <laughs> medicine and, and medical treatment at that time. Another rumor that is actually quite popular is that Poe's parents died together in uh, December of 1811, which they did. But this rumor is that they died on December 26 when the Richmond Theater burned down. Oh, wow. That really did happen, but they were not in the theater. This is just a romanticized. His parents were actors, and they had these babies, and they lost their life in this Mm. theater fire. That is not true at all. Um, She was in Richmond dying of pneumonia or whatever it may have been, and he was in Norfolk, Virginia. So little Poe, almost three years old, goes into foster care. His sister also goes into foster care, but Henry goes to live with their aunt. Mm. Poe ended up at the home of John and Francis Allen, who were successful merchants who traded in things like tobacco, wheat, sugar, and slaves. Oh, well, Southern family. And this was pre-Civil War, so, you know, it was much more accepted, I guess. Not, you know, wanted, but accepted. Uh, yeah, um, I'm not really sure if they had any slaves in their possession that served them or whatever. Um, I really couldn't find anything on that. So if anybody out there knows, let me know of the slave. But this is where he uh, picked up the Allen part of his name, right? It is. That's uh, interesting that you bring that up, actually. At this point, uh, they had him baptized when he was very young as Edgar Allan Poe. But as soon as he became school age, they sent him to England and Ireland for education. And that's where he spent most of his childhood, where he just went by Edgar Allan. Around 1820, he actually came back over from the UK, having done several years of schooling, and to continue his schooling here. And at the age of 15, in the summer of 1824, he swam about seven miles up the James River against heavy tide just to show that he could or whatever. So he was a show off. I'm guessing. I'm guessing. Um, interestingly enough, I'm guessing he, yeah, a show off. I'm not sure. He did have a friend follow behind him in a boat just in case. Mm. So I, I'm not going to give him the daredevil badge there. <laughs> But it's, it's still pretty hardcore. Um, speaking of a beautiful place to die, the James River. Yeah. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the river itself. Um, if you want to picture him swimming up it, it is the largest river in Virginia at 340 miles long. And it begins in the Appalachia Mountains at Bocor County. I'm hoping I say said that right. Probably not. And it flows all the way to the Chesapeake Bay in Hampton Roads, Virginia. It has a range of falls from class one to class five, and is home to blue catfish that can grow as large as a hundred pounds. Oh Jesus! And those, if they get you with their whiskers, that stings and hurts. They will cut you with those. So those those are dangerous fish to be swimming alongside of. I can't even imagine. A a hundred pound fish. That's like a, that's like a, a middle school kid. Yeah, that's that's, that's a big fish. That's I, a seventh I used, grader. I used to catch catfish, and I think ours were like five pounds, out in front of the botanical gardens. <laughs> in that little man-made pond. Yeah. Um, so this is also actually 
The area around the James River is the largest eastern seaboard roosting area for bald eagles. Oh, so that's from above and below. Absolutely, yeah. We have all kinds of wildlife, flora and fauna living there, and it is the water supply for a third of all Virginians. That's pretty cool. It's one of the largest rivers that is contained within one state because this starts in Virginia and ends at the ocean. It doesn't flow through another state. So it's also unique that way as well. Also, a little bit of history of the nickname. It's known as America's Founding River Mm -hmm. because... King James. Well, yes, King James. But in 1607, way before our story is happening... Uh, the Jamestown settlement settled on the James River. Okay, makes and, sense. And they named it. I'm not sure what it was named before that, mm. but nice. we have evidence that indigenous people have lived along the James River for 16,000 years before the colonists ever even came over. I mean, makes sense. If it's the largest river, it's going to be used as the big trading post for, for all of those people. Right, so it's got a long history of supporting people and and wildlife and it's it's beautiful if you ever get a chance to see it i would recommend seeing it and i have one small off-topic story about the james river when i was probably in middle school my cousin and her father uh invited me to go on their boat with them on the james river and he had some sort of like engine smoking issue in my mind at the time it was a huge boat fire and, like, he took us and he sat us to the other side of the boat. And, like, I don't even think there was a fire extinguisher involved. But in my mind, the boat's, like, ablaze. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die in the James River. So it's, uh, I guess, one of the first beautiful places I thought I might die. <laughs> uh, thanks for the adventure, Uncle Randy. <laughs> Back to Poe. In that same summer that he, or the same year that he swam up the James River for seven miles, he also wrote his very first poem that fall. And it was two lines. It says, Last night with many cares and toils oppressed, weary I lay me on a couch to rest. Hmm. This is uh, believed to be his earliest surviving poem at 15, so. Beautiful where it started the following year in june his family john allen they purchased an enormous brick mansion called moldeva for about fourteen thousand nine hundred and fifty dollars oh that's so cheap (laughs) well apparently it was this huge grand mansion on lots of land and really extravagant it was on the southeast corner of 5th and Main Streets in Richmond, Virginia, but was tore down in 1880. Mm, that's why we didn't see it when we went to Richmond. No, I, I'm sorry, it was tore down around 1890, but still way before we were there. In 1826, uh, Poe decided to, to attend the University of Virginia, which had been founded about six months prior by Thomas Jefferson. Go Cavaliers. <laughs> I didn't even know that. <laughs> A, a bad Virginian. <laughs> who, who are the Hokies? That's Virginia Tech. Oh, okay. <laughs> go sports. <laughs> um, so Poe decided to go there, and they were still kind of ironing out all their rules and regulations, but they were really strict on things like 
drinking and gambling and all these super fun things that Poe, who... Really like to do. Right. 16 years old, smart guy, and he was studying ancient languages. Oh. He lasted about a year. That sounds about right. And what is on record is that he quit due to not being able to to afford tuition. Oh. But I, I, I thought his parents were rich. Yeah, a little going a little deeper than that. So John had paid for him to go to the University of Virginia, and Poe said, "Well, I don't have enough money to furnish my dorm, or I don't have enough money to eat." So he would send more and more. But what was actually going on is that Poe was really uh, discovering a love for gambling. Oh man. Gambling and drinking is where his money went, and it is believed that he left the school owing over $2,000. Oh, wow. And fell out of favor with his dad, his foster dad, pretty quickly when he refused to pay his debts. Mm. Poe said, I can't I can't go back unless I pay these debts. And he said, well, I'm, I'm not paying for you to go to school Man. and do that. Debaucher yourself. <laughs> Makes sense why his next choice was the military. It was. So, at that time, Edgar Allen, as he was known, left UVA. And in 1827, at the age of 18, he joined the U.S. Army under the name Edgar A. Perry. Oh. And he was claiming to be 22. He was actually 18. I'm Mm -hmm. not really sure why this was. I couldn't find anything to say that they wouldn't accept an 18-year-old into the military at that time. Actually, from what I found is they would let 10-year-olds join if they wanted to. So I'm not really sure why he bumped up his age. Um, But when he started out with the military, he was earning a solid wage of about $5 a month. Probably a pretty penny back then. No. Oh, okay. (laughs) He did uh, end up getting some raises and and some promotions. In 1827, he was posted in Charleston, South Carolina, which is now Fort Sumter and can be viewed. It is a National Historic Preserve site through the national parks. And he also, that same year, published his first book of poems, Tamerlan and Other Poems. And instead of having it written as Edgar Allen or Edgar Allan Poe or Perry, Perry yeah. or whoever he wanted to go by, he signed that book or, or credited it to a Bostonian. Hmm. That's all it was credited to. There were about 50 copies and most were lost until about 1880, so well after his death. Oh, wow. And uh, a rumor was started that he actually lied about ever having written this book of poems. But we'll, we'll get to the, the rumor mill later. Yeah. So two years in the Army, and he actually attained the rank of Sergeant Major for Artillery, which was the highest enlisted position that he could get. Congrats, bro. Right, at the time. And um, he had been there about two years and decided this wasn't for him. Yeah. Army's not for me. And actually, I don't he, blame him. he decided that enlisted life wasn't for him. I don't blame him. So in 19, or sorry, 18, this is really hard to talk about things so old. <laughs> in 1829, he went to Lieutenant Howard, his lieutenant, and he said, I don't want to do this anymore. And what the lieutenant told him was, 
you need to get your blessing from your father, knowing that he and his father were on outs. So in 1829, Lieutenant Howard had told him if he can reconcile things with his father, that, and he can get him a able-bodied replacement. He said, you have to, if you're going to take something from the U.S. government, you military, you have to give it back. Jesus. Trade for trade. So what he came up with is that if he could get his father to agree to release him, that he would then join West Point. Hmm. So he still is giving something too, but in a different way. Okay. He wanted to be an officer because he had already reached his peak at what he was doing. He wrote letter after letter to John Allen, who ignored them. And then finally, after his foster mother, Frances, who he was very close with, did pass. He was given a leave. He showed up the day after her funeral, and John gave him his blessing to leave the military. Okay. So, uh, Edgar Perry <laughs> left the U.S. military, and it's believed that at that time, that's when he started going by Poe. So, he published his second book. At that time, in 1829, in between leaving the Army and before starting West Point, and he also ended up cutting ties with John completely, who it's not known if they ever spoke again, and when John Allen died, he didn't mention Poe in his will or inheritance in any way. July 1st, 1830, Edgar Allan Poe became a West Point cadet, and... It didn't take very long. It looks like about six months for him to decide that this wasn't for him either. Mm. And at this point, he was on book three of poems and really kind of knew that this is this is what he wanted to do, that the words and literary world had his heart. So he devised a plan to get court-martialed. Oh, wow. That, that's probably There's probably better ways to get out of doing this. But, <laughs> right, let's see what he did. So he decided to protest going to classes or church, and they brought him up on charges of gross negligence of duty and disobedience, and he was court-martialed on February 8th, 1831. Shortly after, mm -hmm. his third book of poems, which was titled Poems, was published, and it was actually financed by donated money from West Point cadets. Oh, wow. Some donating 75 cents here or there. And I think, it, I'm not sure, but I think he had raised a total of about $170 oh, good. in donations. And he did donate, uh, dedicate the book to them. So after leaving the military, he kind of wandered around his adult life between Richmond, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and even New York. Oh, and Boston, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, the Eastern... Mid-Atlantic to North Atlantic was his his stomping grounds, and he kind of went all over. He was one of the first Americans to be known as a writer by profession solely. At the time, you would have some other sort of job and just happen to write a book or write a book as a hobby. It wasn't really thought of something that you just did as a source of income. Right, well, and it wasn't very consistent because not many people were you know, able to read and did, didn't really do so in pleasure. If you did read, you were probably reading more news or getting your news from other people. So, you know, even reading as a 
dedicated hobby was probably few and far between at that point. Well, there were actually a lot of literary magazines, and those were really popular with short stories and poetry and things like that at the time. They were easily passed around the country and cheaply published, so a lot of people could get the, the printed word. And that's actually kind of where he ended up finding his kind of niche and and the only stable real income that he had. He worked as an editor um, from 1835 to 1842 um, across three different magazines. The Southern Literary Magazine, Burton's Gentleman's Magazine, and Graham's Magazine. Um, while working there, he was able to write many stories and editorials and things of the like and have them published because he was the editor. So during this time, his name kind of really got out there and he was going by Edgar A. Poe at that point. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I did forget. He also worked at the New York Evening Mirror and the Broadway Journal. Hmm. While working as an editor, um, he had some other things going on in his life. He reunited with his brother Henry just before his passing of likely tuberculosis or um, some other related disease. He was, like his father, an alcoholic and and sick and died in his 20s. He had been living with his aunt Marie Clem and her mother and her daughter Virginia. So at this time, he met his little cousin Virginia he was uh, 27, I believe, and she was 13 at the point they decided to marry. It is said that his aunt was a doting mother-in-law and really supportive of the union. So creepy on so many levels. <laughs> I mean, there's the, the cousin thing, so that's like, you know, ew. Yeah. And then the, the child predator thing. Um, one more note on the creepy. Mm. In a letter that he wrote... In uh, when he was 26 to his aunt begging for her his permission to marry Virginia he said I love you know I love Virginia passionately devotedly I cannot express in words the fervent devotion I feel towards my dear little cousin my own darling hmm. creepy <laughs> Anyway, moving on. Right, moving on. Um, So they were married in 1836, and not long after, in 1842, she got sick. Mm -hmm. She was singing and playing piano, and it it said that she just started spitting up blood. Oh, wow. Or TB. Right. Um, Or consumption. They weren't really sure at the time, but it's believed that it was TB. I thought that was the same thing. I'm not a doctor. Okay. I'm a podcaster. Yep, that's true. (laughs) So while she's sick, um, he's writing and working and um, drinking more and more. Um, He's now survived the death of so many people in his life to to this disease, and now it's, it's taking his young wife. In 1845, while all of this is going on, he wrote a poem called The Raven and published it on January 29th and instantly it was a success and Edgar A. Poe became a household name. For this, he made $9. $9 for one of the most iconic and 
memorable poems that you know is probably still read in middle schools and analyzed and everything i know that was like the first thing you i heard a pose ever uh was that and that it, it is such a beautiful poem I, I read it on a uh, fairy tales back when i used to do that yeah i know um you have that beautiful copy you need to hang up somewhere it's mm-hmm. it's really nice you got it from the richmond poem museum yep so, uh, he made basically nothing, but it's now famous. People know him as a well-known writer. Um, he keeps going along, writing things, nothing quite as popular as The Raven, and not making as much. Still kind of living hand-to-mouth, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Boarding houses with his whole family. In 1847, Virginia did die of the tuberculosis, consumption, whatever, um, I, I apologize, medical people. <laughs> um, they had no children. Uh, he continued to live with his mother-in-law for some time after. Uh, and, and just kind of spiraled with drinking and everything else. He reunited. He um, met a woman, a widowed woman named Sarah, and was engaged to her. But I think that her mother had discouraged the union. Then he reunited with another Sarah, who had been his childhood sweetheart before he had gone off to University of Virginia. Oh, okay. She had married while he was away, and um, now she also was widowed. But that marriage did not happen either, though it said that they were engaged in his final years. So, she died in 1847. Two years later, it's believed to be at the urging of the second Sarah uh, he joined a temperance movement which had him quit drinking in August of 1849 Mm. getting closer we are getting closer September 28th 1849 he gets on the Pocahontas in Richmond and sails to Baltimore it's not clear exactly which day he arrived in Baltimore but um by October 3rd, 1849, he was found semi-conscious, and the man who found him, Joseph Walker, said he was in great distress and in immediate need of assistance. He was immediately taken to the Washington Medical College, where he passed a few days later at 5 a.m. on Sunday, October 7th, 1849. In the hours before his death, the early morning hours, late night hours, it is said that he would scream and cry out Reynolds over and over. Mm. No one knew who, rental, who Reynolds could be, though. So newspapers said that he died of congestion of the brain. Huh. So, again, I'm a podcaster, not a doctor, but I'm thinking that's not a real thing. Probably not. It was uh, something that was commonly listed on death certificates when the actual cause of death wasn't known, um, but could be something like alcohol withdrawal, right? Um, a heart attack. It's also um, theorized that he died of syphilis, rabies, mm-hmm. or was murdered. Yeah, I knew uh, I knew the murder one. Uh, there was actually can't remember the name of the practice now, but uh, I, I read this whole thing years ago about how 
he possibly could have been attacked because at the time there was an election coming up and it was uh, actually very popular to force people through violence and drugging to go and it, they would take these drugged people and put them in the polling booths and, and pretty much force them to vote for their candidate. And there's rumors that this is what happened to Poe as well. And then they left him on, on the bench, uh, you know, to, to die or whatever. They, they... Uh, I didn't come across that murder theory, but one of the ones that I did come across was the, I, and I didn't write down because I didn't think I was going to talk about it. Um, the name of the practice of where everyone in the town to control population votes to group kill someone. Oh. Uh, so it's it's thought that he may have volunteered or or drawn the short straw for that. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that one either. All right. So there's there's a bunch of different theories. Um, one thing other than the Reynolds thing that is really strange is he wasn't wearing his own clothing when he was found. Mm. I'm not sure how they know that or what he was wearing, but it said he was in another man's clothes. That's interesting. And I, yeah, I remember that now because the, the theory of the, the, the voting thing was uh, part of it is that they had dressed him up as somebody else or what they would do is they would take the same person through multiple times because there was no way of really checking who had already voted and they, they would just say, oh yeah, this, this is my buddy John and then five minutes later they throw on a hat and you know another jacket and say, this is my, my friend Ben. Um, so yeah, definitely weird. Very weird set of circumstances. Not 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 the same as my story, but you know, who knows? Who knows what he was seeing in his last few days. Right. And uh, in your story you did mention a, a real place that exists today, uh, the Horseshoe Road Inn on Saloon. And that still exists in Fells the Fells Point neighborhood of Baltimore, am I correct? Yes. Beautiful, beautiful old style Baltimore neighborhood with still the cobblestone streets, um, and the the original brick of it. Uh, we didn't get to go into the bar at that time. We, we ran out of time, but we did go in front of it and look at it. I think it was also more magical going down there because uh, it was just before Thanksgiving and places started having their holiday lights and we were down there after dark and it was absolutely magical. Um, but it's it's rumored that he was seen there drinking, but then again, he hadn't been living in Baltimore. He had been living in Richmond. He had just gotten to Baltimore and it's rumored that he was sober. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody said they may have seen him slip off the wagon, as it were, at a cousin's wedding in September when he made the toast and he took a sip, but it's believed that he had been dry the month leading up to his death. Um, okay, so before we move on and talk about some of the scandals and rumors that preceded his death, I did want to mention one other weird rumor that I came across, and it, it looks like there's some a little bit of confusion about whether this happened or not. Um, at the hospital, it said that he was, his body was taken to the rotunda and put on display. Um, and then some other reports say this happened at his aunt's house. Okay. Or his cousin's house. That's there's, there's a big weird. family tree going on there. Weird thing to do. Um, well, it gets weirder. Because Poe was a famous writer at this point, despite mm-hmm. being broke and alone, he was still a famous writer. So hundreds of people came to see his body and they wanted to touch him. And many wanted to uh, cut off and did t- take with them a lock of his hair. Oh, wow. So, I mean, he wrote all these macabre stories and I guess even then he had the goth girls coming for him. <laughs> I'd say those goth fan girls. <laughs> 
so there's there's likely like random locks of um Poe's hair with with people's great great grandma's uh trunk of nice keepsakes nice. <laughs> up and down the east coast beautiful <laughs> all right so it and the thing is, what we have to also keep in mind here is a lot of what we know about Poe, and especially in his last few days, actually comes from a really unlikely source of a, a man by the name of Rufus Wilmot Griswold, who is actually his biggest literary rival. Um, what he did is after Poe's death, he went ahead and wrote Poe's obituary, which of course, if you're going to be somebody's rival, you're not going to sit and suddenly have a change of heart because your rival died. Now this is the chance to really go after the man. Um, so he spent most of the time after Poe's death condemning the man. He, he would tell, he told everybody, uh, that most of his stories were fake or he didn't write them. Uh, he posted a book of his uh, Poe's poems um, under his own publishing company. Um, in the obituary, he accused Poe of being an addict and a drunk and a druggie. Griswold actually wrote the, bi the biggest biography about Poe of the time. And actually, it's, it's what we've known for, for history for years of the only credible source of Poe's life and Poe's things. So we do have to take a lot of what we're, we're doing with a grain of salt because nobody actually knows the true story because most of his friends and family were already dead by that time. And the power of the pen overwhelmed them all through Griswold's writings. Well, they weren't all dead. His uh, former childhood sweetheart and then later in life fiance Sarah, I believe, actually wrote um, an essay defending him and, and had that published. And some other people defended him as well. But Rufus Griswold actively wanted to see Poe depicted as a depraved, drunken, drug-addled madman who just wandered the streets of Baltimore just drunk and, and homeless acting. And we know that's obviously not true because he had only been in Baltimore maybe that same day. Maybe whatever happened to him happened to him on the ship and he got off the ship and was found. Yeah. We don't know. Um, but he really wanted us to think of him as a depressed lunatic just living on the edge. And he published the book of poems he called him a liar about how many things he had published and that's kind of what i had talked about earlier with that first book of poems being lost until 1880 and then he kind of had to eat crow about calling him a liar for that yeah so the the mystery of poe's death is is definitely going to be one of the biggest talking points of, of anything and I, I know it's always been on people's mind but you know it doesn't take away from kind of the magnanimous life that he lived you know especially being a famous writer that wasn't making money you know you you look at today's writers and you have uh, you know horror writers like king um you know tom clancy you know, who's science fiction action you know a bunch of different writers who you, you, once you make it big you're, you're guaranteed almost money you know because then you can get film rights and you can get tv shows and you can get everything which is things poe has now but he's not around to, to take advantage of it. And while he was alive, he didn't get to reap these benefits. You know, even being famous, it was more of a word of mouth kind of thing. Well, and you know, we all have this picture of Poe. Dark hair, dark clothing, sad eyes, and yes, drunk, crazy. And it's easy to argue that someone who wrote those types of things 
was a madman in his head. But whether or not he lived that out on the streets or just kept it in the sheets of paper. Sheets of paper. <laughs> you love my jokes. Oh, yeah. Um, it that is unknown. But I just kind of want to put it into a little bit of perspective. He died at 40 years old. So all those depictions that we have of him mostly are through his 30s and mm-hmm. younger. And to kind of put that in perspective, right now, actors such as Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Adam Lambert, and Justin Timberlake are around that same age that Poe was when he died. So we don't think of any any of those as old men. I, I don't. No, anyway. yeah. I mean, he definitely was not old. He was, you know, young. I mean, he lived a hard life. I mean, that that's definitely true. He, he suffered a lot of loss, but that... It explains his writings, and I think a lot of the people of that time didn't know as much as we do about him with, with what he had to go through and who he lost, his his real parents, his foster parents, his siblings, his, his the loves of his life, um, and all of that echoes through his writings. Um, in my story, I, I didn't have a chance to really capture even 20% of, of his things, but I did... Um, capture a few of his more telling things the telltale heart um the black cat both of those stories are about lies and grief and death the mask of the red death is actually about red death it's it's his exploration into probably tuberculosis or or consumption and these diseases that just crop up and take people and especially through parties uh you know with people gathering and then all of a sudden you get sick you know that that was his exploration into it so he talked a lot about death he talked a lot about loss he talked a lot about these this guilty feeling and and deception because these are the things he had grown up seeing and knowing not necessarily you know we don't know how much of it he personally experienced but we know he experienced loss he experienced love and obsession and that comes through with so many of his stories as well um the poem that i referenced that he he was he wasn't really rejected for i i made that up for the story literary creativity here but uh that was his last poem that he had written and it was again about a woman that he was just thought the narrator was so passionately in, in love with that even after she died he could not uh, he, he couldn't continue on you know he wanted to die and he died working on that poem and it was uh, published posthumously but all these themes just kept going through so it's easy for people of that time to really believe Griswold's lies of, of oh this is just a sad broken man when in reality he probably enjoyed life I mean clearly this was a young man who swam into James River you know just to show off and you know he, he joined the military to you know experience this, this different kind of life and be around people he seemed to love people so what we're he had no trouble getting women to agree to marry him. Right, exactly. I so, mean, it, it happened multiple times, and in both cases, it was kind of their mothers and their families that were like, eh, he's kind of a, a broke, drunk dude, you know. Yeah, but, I mean, at the time, who wasn't? I mean, most, most people were getting drunk or going <laughs> they're, off they're, to, to war or farming. They're wealthy dead husbands. <laughs> so we're... So, since we are a beautiful places to die, we're not just talking about the people or the, the events, which I know we kind of did focus on last episode in here, but the reason we brought this up is because we did actually get to go to Baltimore over Thanksgiving uh, of 2022, and we spent a uh, night going around to the uh, well-known lo- locations uh, of where Poe was. So, po- we went to Poe's house, uh, which was you know, kind of in, in tucked away and 
far off from from downtown um you know just a tiny very very tiny narrow house on, on the edge of the street we couldn't go in it because the tours were closed at the time we went um uh, but we did it get was to late go as hell. Uh, yeah, it was very late. Very dark. <laughs> very. <laughs> no street lights around there. No, but it, it, it was really nice to see. Uh, we did go to the church where he was buried at, and we got to see uh, the tombstone that they have for the memorial, because I think his, his body was buried somewhere else. Uh, but now they have more of a memorial there. But we did get to see that. There's also a memorial for uh, Virginia and um, Virginia's aunt, his aunt, uh, Virginia's Marie. mother, Marie. Uh, thank you. So we did get to see that. Um, as we mentioned, we saw the horse you rode in on Saloon, and we did go to the Washington uh, Memorial Hospital where uh, Poe passed away. And they also have a, a statue in Baltimore that you can go to. So there's about five or six places where you can actually go and walk where Poe did. And we, we literally walked Baltimore streets. It was so great. Baltimore, compared to where we live, we live in a kind of suburban area in the south. And Baltimore was so, so fun and so great. We walked everywhere and there was the harbor like everywhere and there were jellyfish everywhere. I totally fell in love. I could see why they call it Charm City, even if it's not for a charming reason. It's probably some crazy old murderous reason. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, walking everywhere, it it definitely gives you an appreciation. And I I kept that in mind as I was walking those streets, especially when we were going to see the the Poe locations and where he was, because it was kind of just this realization that while it was all built up and obviously way more city and industrial and a lot of, you know, their hard rock cafe there, a lot of restaurants, the the integrity was still there and you just walking in those streets you're like this is where poe walked poe literally walked these same streets and he was a walker you know he he went there he went to the bars he he partied there so you're walking these same cobblestone streets well, there were no cars yeah there were no cars you didn't know, really have much choice right to walk. well they had carriages and <laughs> yeah. stuff um but it was it was kind of humbling i guess in a way to you know to over almost 200 years later and we're we're seeing the same same streets the same ocean or the same bay the same neighborhoods that that this famous writer was just you know living his life and just doing what he loved um in order to do that and you know along with that came the dangers because it is much more industrialized you know while it wasn't a camping trip or anything that we did this time or a hike um you know, it's rough learning, learning the city streets and, you know, learning how to cross, when to cross and, you know, the different kind of people because people up in Baltimore are not as polite. I'm sorry, Baltimoreans, but like y'all were kind of rude while we were there. And I don't know if it's because we're from the South and we have the Southern charm to match it up again, but it, it, it was a different experience, beautiful experience. And definitely if you're going to go someplace to, to die on a city bench, a park bench, you know, I couldn't pick a better city than Baltimore, honestly. And if we are talking about places where Poe walked and lived, we actually also visited in the spring of 2019 his childhood home that I believed he lived in with the Allens. Yeah, that was before the mansion. Yes, that was where he lived with the Allens when he was a young child before he went to to England. Uh, We got to see like the actual schoolroom that he went to. They still had some of his old stuff from there. Um, There's a replica of the coffin. Um, that I, I don't know if it, it wasn't where he was buried, but I think it was where like one of his family members, like you could sit in like a coffin and it, it was tight, very, very tight. But Um, a replica, they didn't like pull a dead guy out so you could hang out in there. Uh, but no, that, that was also pretty cool. That was, uh, 
you know that, that we got to do the tour of and we got to see it has a garden in it and a bunch of poe memorabilia so that was and uh i don't know the exact sites um that he lived in when he lived in norfolk virginia or where his father died um you know maybe some deeper digging we could figure that out but as you know i was born in norfolk virginia and you grew up there yeah. so i can't imagine that it's not someplace that we didn't pass a million times and not oh, realize yeah. it oh yeah so we just have a couple more uh po locations on our, our list to check off fort sumpner philadelphia and boston and Boston. I think there's something in New York as well. Oh, yeah. We'll probably do that one. Anyway. Um, a couple of the sites are actually owned and operated by the National Park Services as well. There is an Edgar Allan Poe Foundation that has worked to preserve some of these sites. Um, lots of different historical societies up and down through these cities as well. Yeah. So it, it's it, going through Poe's stories and, and his, you know, the movie adaptations, everything is one thing. I mean, it's, it's, he's definitely left a legacy in terms of horror. I mean, that you, you could argue his work inspired, you know, Mary Shelley inspired HP Lovecraft inspired Stephen King. I mean, definitely inspired Stephen King. Um, you know, as you can see more modern writers and, and the way that he does it, but his, his idea of Gothic horror is what really has captured imagination. He, he didn't rely as much on, outright scaring people i mean nonetheless a lot of his stories are scary you know the fall of the house usher the 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 murders of the rue morgue you know very terrifying but a lot of them more are about the realization of death um and for him to have died so young and so early is is definitely as well of something you want to keep in mind because it can happen you know we don't know why he died he could have lived for many many more years and produced many more works but he didn't get that chance, but we, he's still alive and he's still very much alive and not just through his stories, but in the streets, you know, going to Baltimore, going to Philadelphia, going to these places and feeling his energy is just something I recommend you highly, yeah, highly recommend you do. Oh, oh, oh. So you're saying that he's still alive in the streets and in the sheets. Yes. In both of those. <laughs> Right, so that's going to do it for us with this episode of Beautiful Places to Die. Um, as we are on most major podcasting apps, we're still trying to get on Apple Music, but we are on Stitcher, on Spotify, on Pocket Cast, on Amazon Music, um, and as well as some various other podcasting apps. We're going to be getting the Instagram and the blog up and running so we can show off some of the cool places uh, and the, the sites that we've got to see of everything. The Instagram is up and running at Beautiful Places to Die. Uh, we have beautifulplacestodie.com that is coming soon. It is on my large list of website remodels right now. Um, thank you so much for coming and listening, especially if you tuned in to the first episode of Word Vomit. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs>